I heartily endorse this event or product. Ahoy hoy everybody, this is Bob Mackey, and this is the Talking Simpsons Patreon preview special, and uh, with me as always is... Interview lover Henry Gilbert, hello! And uh, Chris is on assignments, but uh, we're here basically to give you a little glimpse into what uh, donating to our Patreon program will give you. We have, we have so much content, frankly, Henry, and you pointed this out as well, it's hard to promote it because it's just, you have to say so many things. Yeah, to, to give the true scope of what, what what is offered for your $5 or $10 uh, to the Patreon, you kind of get lost in it to say like well you get an extra weekly podcast with the critic but you also get episodes early and they're ad free and you also get videos that we do about once a month and then all the specials and uh, it's a lot also just all the legwork that we put into preparing and tracking down people for interviews that are on the patreon i want more people to hear those too and so yeah yeah i don't think people get what they're missing out on interview wise too that we so we have these really cool interviews we offer on this glimpses of what those are and you if you sign up for the patreon you can hear the rest of them and they're all really cool yeah and they're all each about an hour long right Mm -hmm. yeah they are full interviews like and they're super thankful to people who've given us their time for that and we have more interviews of bubbling up and a brewing Mm -hmm. uh outside of that one but so they, yeah, I just I wanted this episode to share with the people who uh, just listen on the traditional feed what they're missing. Yeah, and our first interview we're going to uh, give you a sneak peek of is with Bill Oakley. We talked to him again, and I love that first interview. Uh, but I think this one is even better because we are we're now best friends with him, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. We were both a lot more relaxed yeah. than we were in the first interview. We were not I've... faking sick at our old jobs to talk to him either. We were yeah. like, oh, I have all the time in the world now. Yeah, and that we, I, I felt more at ease with him. I felt our chemistry was better, and I felt that we were able to even more get into the nitty-gritty details. Yeah, and... We didn't have to feel focused on doing a complete overview of his career. Instead, we're like, we're pretty much in seasons five and six, going into seven. So let's just talk about that pretty much. Yeah, and he seems to like us, and I hope we can talk to him again. I definitely want to talk to him about Mission Hill and maybe what he did on Futurama and things yeah. like that. Oh, and, and he, shares, yeah. he shares some uh, little tiny tidbits about what he's working on now, which is the next Matt Groening series, mm. the one for Netflix called Disenchantment. Looking forward to that. Yes, but so in this clip, uh, we're going to play here about 10 minutes of it. He talks a bit about the seasons five and six episodes he worked on, including... The table read for Lady Bouvier's Lover and a cut joke from it that he was surprised to hear from us that it was deleted. Yeah, that's right. It will blow your mind, I hope. So uh, please enjoy this little snippet of the Bill Oakley interview. So I want to talk about some specific episodes, and one of which there's a bit of controversy around. Well, there used to be. It's um, A Star is Burns, the famous critic crossover. I think everyone remembers that as a very enjoyable episode with uh, Jay Sherman involved, but there was some behind-the-scenes uh, dust-ups. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you fell in that um, argument about uh, whether or not there should be a, a critic crossover? You know, it, it was. A, did you guys read the article that was in the LA Times about this topic? Like, I think that covers it pretty well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long ago was that. Well, it was during the whenever that thing came on the air. I think maybe, like, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, at the time. Yeah, I think I have read it at one point in, in time. Yeah, I read it as well. J- James L. Brooks had some um, words about Mac Rainey taking his name off it and all that. So, I, I, yeah, that covers it pretty. 
pretty well in the time. But, yeah. Uh, no. I mean, I would say that we were probably on Matt's side. Like, here's the thing. It was a thorny issue because, number one, Mike and Al had hired us. Mike and Al, uh, we have an, an immense amount of respect for Mike and Al and their terrific work they did on uh, the entire time they were there, including the best season of TV ever, which is season three of The Simpsons. And they went off to create The Critic, which also on its own is hilarious. You know, I think it was a question of did people, a lot of people back then, including us and I, and maybe Matt, had kind of high-minded ideas about The Simpsons as being a unique thing that should be free from things like promoting other TV shows. And there had been a number of attempts in, within that in that universe, like celebrities calling up and trying to get on to promote their thing. Like, I'll just go back and say, this is not necessarily a parallel issue, but for a while, there was an su- entire subplot in a gambling episode about a planet in Hollywood opening up in Springfield. I don't know if this was covered on the DVDs or, or, I know, or what. I, I think it was mentioned lightly, but yeah. <laughs> but it was like publicist for planet hollywood called up and was like we'll get you the voices of schwarzenegger and bruce willis and whoever the hell was the third guy <laughs> in that restaurant scam they can they'll be on the show if you per- make a whole subplot about planet hollywood and so we had to do it and i think that we were like this crummy you know the simpsons from bef- long before the time we were hired we thought the simpsons was the best show in the history of tv bar none and that we should and it should should be devoid of things like promotion for a theme restaurant or promoting now in the case of the critic it was a much thornier issue because it was mike and al's show they were simpsons heroes they'd hire all of us and it was also brooks's show and brooks is the man who writes the checks and, and runs the whole operation so you know he wanted to do it and i would say the writers in general did not want to do it but the episode came out like here's the thing ultimately the episode came out very well and nobody cared <laughs> about the cross promotion except for us writers and i think we were proven wrong a, a n- number of times during that era about like us thinking the simpsons was so that it was it, we shouldn't tamper with the formula because they tampered with the formula and it worked fine and nobody cared mm. um so that was the thing and i think we were probably a little too strident in our opinions as we were back then um and and remain today <laughs> <laughs> maybe our trademark is being strident in our opinions but that was there was a controversy yes uh, you know, as a fan, I totally understand that. As a fan, like, I, I wouldn't have liked if, say, Drexler from Drexler's Class showed up on The Simpsons to promote his show, or if it was another one. But even at the time, I knew I knew I, I loved The Critic as a fan and, and, and was aware of its connection to The Simpsons. So it felt, it did feel more organic. And also, I thought the, the joke about the Flintstones meeting the Jetson in there kind of undercut it so much that it was like, okay, they, they recognize that's great yeah i i would say that ultimately we were probably on the wrong side of that thing and it sh- shouldn't have been the big deal and i mean it wasn't like we were being consulted about it <laughs> it was just that we were on the writing staff and we had an opinion like ultimately it was the, and also i should say there wasn't it wasn't just one there were supposed to be four episodes as i recall where the critic appeared oh, oh wow i didn't know this yeah i'm pretty sure that was the case and then that was talked down to one so you know, I, it was a bigger thing as it, than it was presented. But anyway, I, I think that we were on the wrong side and it came out fine. Well, speaking of specific episodes, we just uh, recorded the one for Sideshow Bob Roberts. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> that is oh, one, yeah. one of my all-time favorites. I Watching it now, I was shocked at how 
openly political and with an opinion it was, which you don't really see on network TV sitcoms these days, I would say. And so, I mean, was that was that ever an issue getting into like like say which I agree with that Republicans are vampires and monsters? But... Yeah, it's much harder on Republicans than Democrats, which I like. But it was surprising to see that uh, in that era. I think we, you know, politically the Simpsons has already up to that point had been pretty balanced in terms of like criticizing both sides equally, and there were a large number of jokes about democrats <laughs> like i thought what, what, didn't you wonder why you're getting checks for doing absolutely nothing grandpa <laughs> i thought it was because the democrats were in power again yeah there there were a number of jokes like that and like in this case it was just like the episode at least the political parts of it almost practically wrote themselves like it was so this was the you know the height of rush limbaugh mania and, and also this episode is so anti i have to say seeing this episode now you must it the politics are so quaint. Like, it's so, like, even Bob's conspiracy... Like, first of all, Bob is a very talented guy who was very smart and probably would have been a perfectly fine mayor, even if he was evil, as opposed to, like, what we have now. It, it, I don't want to get into politics. I got a, I got <laughs> criticism last time for getting into politics on your show, so maybe Aww, I'll just do sorry. <laughs> anyway, I'll still clear it. But the thing is that Matt, like, the show is, is the to some extent, is the voice or, or is the voice of Matt Groening. And Matt Groening is well known to have, you know, left wing political views. And that's like why we did that whole joke about him being the right wing cartoonist with the eye patch who created Johnny <laughs> Reb and Tales of Damnation, you know, and, and that NRA for everything and that clip show thing. So I would just say the whole point was to embrace to criticize Republicans with such – to have it be over the top. I mean it was supposed to be silly. Like the majority of the criticisms of Republicans were supposed to be so over the top that they couldn't be taken seriously, that they were like – they were vampires. You know, it was ham-handed it, it, intentionally. Like they were vampires who lived in a castle mm-hmm. and stuff. And the, the Democrats were portrayed as bumbling and, you know, fairly – Quimby is already a well-established character, so we didn't have to go too far from canon to work with that, you mm-hmm. know. I did like that literally was growing pot in the mayor's office. Like, that was pretty great. Yeah. And he was farming it himself, too, which was, <laughs> I thought was pretty ambitious. He was very hands-on, yeah. Uh, the Well, and also in that episode, I think it, it, Smithers' sexuality had been danced around for a while, but this was this felt even more so of Smithers outright saying, like, agree with his choice of lifestyle. Yeah, it did feel like the first time Smithers' uh, gayness was not a joke. It was mm-hmm. a, a plot point, but also a, a way to characterize him. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I feel like it had already been fairly well established. Mm-hmm. over the years you know like with the mr burns flying into his window <laughs> and, and during that fantasy sequence and stuff and in this case it's true that this was the first time it had been taken seriously and it wasn't played as a joke and it just seemed like it was the whole thing was in a retelling of the watergate scandal and he seemed like the perfect person to kind of play deep throat in that he was like you know he was in on the inner workings of that that scheme anyway mm. yes i think you're right in saying that was probably the first time it was handled with seriousness yeah i also love in that scene where homer when homer reveals deep throat is smithers and he just says hi mr smithers like that reminds me of the friendliness in their relationship in homer the smithers too which is one of my favorites of uh, of season of the seasons you guys ran oh me too yeah it's business-like but but friendly <laughs> their relationship and i would say homer probably thinks that smithers likes him a lot more than he does but that's <laughs> part of homer's charm so i wanted to get into the uh basically the path to becoming a showrunner for season seven and eight on our last interview i believe you said you probably would have left the show if you had not become a showrunner with john 
Josh for those seasons. And uh, from our conversation now, it sounds like a very long uh, and tedious process. Can you talk a little bit about the steps that were taken to get there and how you eventually landed in that role with Josh? Yeah, I'm trying to think back on some of the origins of it. Like, I, I actually don't remember why Merkin wanted to, like, I think the thing is, up till that point, it seemed like you everybody took the job for two years and then they left. And like, that's kind of what Sam had done. And that's what Mike and Al had done. And then David Merkin did that too. Although I wonder if he had the opportunity to stay on and I'm surprised it didn't, but he had a, a feature movie career that was taking off and maybe he wanted to get out of, of Dodge at that point. So I guess, yeah, thinking back on it, I'm actually wondering why he didn't stay for a third or fourth season, but perhaps, I don't know, he'd, he'd probably answer that better. Anyway, so, so the job was going to be vacant. And I mean, Josh and I, I think we're certainly the most senior guys there. And we had written more scripts than anybody at that point on the staff, other than Swartzwelder, who was not really like, <laughs> he didn't really come in at that point. He just kind of brought his scripts in and left. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a lot of visions for the show. And I think, and it, and I believe I wasn't privy to all the back behind the scenes stuff, but I know that Merkin recommended us for the job. And I'm eternally uh, grateful to him for doing that and that he, he lobbied for us. And I know the biggest issue was that we didn't want to take the job for two years. We wanted to take it for one year. Oh, really? And yeah. And we, it, it remained like the contract stalled out for like, I don't know, five or six months. I recall like they were just like, no, you're not going to do that for one year. And we said, okay, well, we're not doing it then. And then they came back and then like five months later, they came back and said, okay, I, I don't know what happened during that period. I assume they searched, they searched around or they, <laughs> sought out substitutes for us but then they came back and said okay you can do it for one year Hmm. and then halfway through the the next year we were like okay we'll do it for one more year and i would say it was easier for us too also because there are two of us uh as opposed to someone like david merkin who had to handle everything on his own since josh and i were able to divide up the work um it wasn't quite as backbreaking as it had been you know for a single guy running the show i i wondered too if you know one of your last episodes before you guys took over was the Simpsons only two-parter ever who shot Mr. Burns and I were you guys more involved in that one than than other episodes you did show ran and I, I I had always wondered if that helped with your transition over to show running I think we were writing this is an interesting point I don't remember the timing of it I think that we were already in the middle of writing that episode when those contract negotiations were going on and in fact I'm pretty sure I recall like writing this writing we were in the middle of writing part two and we were like okay, well, this is it. We turned in this script, we're walking out the door and leaving. And I think that that was the point when the contract negotiations had fallen apart. And we were just like, okay, well, let's get this wrapped up. Let's do a, a great job and then clean out our office and leave. And were we more involved in that? I mean, not really. Dave Merkin was the showrunner. And I, we definitely, just because of the large number of clues and other stuff that had to be inserted, we were kind of like, we really went over the storyboards with, you know, with a fine tooth comb and did that kind of stuff. But just to make sure that the proper clues were laid in. In terms of everything else, like directing the actors and doing all the general producing that was still david merkin 100 percent uh this came up in our research for lady bouvier's lover that there was an article in 1994 for in the la daily news about the table read for it that really focused you know on on merkin and and the actors but i, I was curious first off you know but did you recall that day when when the reporter was there and do you recall this article no <laughs> to answer your question bluntly i did read the article because you sent it to me i recall the table read with great vividness because it was probably the best one of the best table reads we ever had oh wow um, at least when we were there because it the story really pulled at your heartstrings and like that was one of the things that like the table read is a weird beast because it's the composition of people sitting in that room is not really that similar to the composition of the simpsons audience you know it's like the simpsons audience in my mind is always kind of 
kind of like mainly males between the ages of like you know 15 and 25 although i'm sure it's it's definitely not that way anymore that's what it was back then like and the people in this in the table read are often are grown-ups <laughs> and like grown up back then grown-ups didn't really watch the simpsons i have to say like that's why we we're still number 55 in the ratings every week because like all the grown-ups were too busy watching mad about you <laughs> which you know we all know how that turned out <laughs> anyway, so that table read was excellent because it, first of all, it appealed to the older crowd that was in the table reads. Um, and it was emotional. It was an emotional story with very clear plot points. And Josh and I have always learned that over the years that like a story with really clear emotional plot points will always play much better at the table read, no matter what it is, <laughs> than an abstract show. Like, for instance, like 22 short films, which had a terrible table read. That's just... And the table read, as I said, is a weird beast because you're playing it for an audience that is not the real audience. And a lot of it just depends on what the actors are doing at the table. And even back then, a lot of times the actors would not all be there. And my guess is that because this was being reported by the newspaper, all the actors showed up <laughs> that mm. day. Oh, wow. So, like, we didn't have, have to have a telephone with Harry Shearer broadcasting over it from London. Like, they all probably came in. And sat down that day because it was being reported upon. So that was maybe one of the reasons it was such a great table read. Yeah, and uh, there's one bit in there that really got me that it said that Maggie spoke her second word in, oh, in yeah. that script that she had said spaghetti. Like, do you do you remember that? Because that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. That wasn't Maggie... that in the episode? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Man, I still feel like that wasn't the episode. It must have gotten cut for time in the last. Because you're. It's not even. A, it's not even a deleted scene on well, the. It's, uh, yeah, it's DVD. not on the DVDs as a deleted scene either. No, that's hilarious. Because I could have sworn if you had bet me, I would have bet you fifty bucks right now that it was <laughs> was actually on the air. But yeah, it must have got cut for time because the whole joke was. She spoke a second word and nobody cared. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, was like, there was such, it, it was during that birthday party thing. And she just said spaghetti. And she kept saying it over and over and over. And everybody was like, we are, you said your first word last week. We don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and you can talk. And I think, I, I think also maybe Matt may ha have had some objection to it because he didn't want the character to evolve past, you know, to have the ability to talk. And that might have been why it got cut, mm, too. Interesting. Mm, wow, man. So we hope you enjoyed that. And up next, we have an interview snippet with Paul Provenzano. He mm -hmm. worked on several licensed video game titles in the 90s. But more specifically, what we're interested in is his work on games like Virtual Springfield. Uh, did he do work on Bart's Nightmare, I yeah, believe? He yeah, he worked on Bart's Nightmare, Virtual Bart, Krusty's Fun House. That's right, yeah. yeah. He gave us a real look into the world of video game licensing mm -hmm. of that time, what it was like to work with Matt Groening. But what is this uh, snippet all about, Henry? Uh, well, so this is early in our chat with him, and Chris was here for this one, and we chatted with Paul about how he got started in the games industry and working at Acclaim and what Acclaim was like. So also, if you're one of our Retronauts crossover fans mm, who hello. loves hearing about classic video games, this is some real insightful stuff into it. And he especially talks about what it was like to work with Matt Groening and other folks at the Simpsons on making Simpsons video games back in the Wild West of Simpsons, of, of licensed game making. Mm-hmm. So yes, here is our interview with Paul Provenzano. Enjoy this portion of it. We, we've done a lot of conversations about licensed games. Mm -hmm. And licensed games in the early Nintendo Super Nintendo period were like kind of related merchandise to a, a popular product. And I think you're stepping in at a time where they're starting to treat games more like an entertainment product to stand on its own. Yeah. 
because before that, and, and again, the involvement of, of, you know, Matt with the Simpsons games was sort of a turning point, even for a claim. Mm. I mean, they, you know, in that period, you could do a lot of games really fast. Yeah. So in that period, I was also doing um, Marvel games, and you know, it was so casual back then. You would just you know, go into Manhattan and sit down with the editors and talk about storylines and look through the history and just pick something. <laughs> you know, wow. We did a game called Spider-Man and the Sinister Six. Oh, yeah, I did play that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was me sitting in a room with a bunch of editors and going, well, what about this? They go, well... I go, yeah, but you've got this character named Arcade, and it just seems so <laughs> fitting. <laughs> We're like, yeah. And, you know, that was it. There was no, like, corporate overview. There was no kind of planning, you know, synergy with... Uh, it's just that's the game we're going to do. I'm wow. sure you would is not you know, like that anymore. It is not. Yeah, anymore. no, that is amazing. Just to know, like Marvel, Marvel now is this giant thing, and to think that at one point it was just editors sitting down and saying, well, like, everything was up for Spider-Man. grabs at that point. Yeah. yeah. What was your yeah, role as producer? What did that entail? I'm guessing it differed from product, project to project, but it sounds like you're pitching ideas, you're acting as a liaison. I'm just curious as to if you how much more you did. It sounds pretty interesting. Well, there was our boss. He was the head of product development, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Smolsky. And then there were, at a, at a claim in the early days, there were multiple teams. There was a black team, that was us, the white team, and then there, I, I don't know, the red, the gray, I don't remember which color. There was another <laughs> color. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's just say. And within that group, we had two or three project producers. So they would be doing day-to-day, they would supervise testing. My job was uh, to work with Paul to schedule things, to uh, decide which projects my team should be doing versus, you know, the other teams. And in the sort of in the beginning stages of the games, kind of structure it and then, you know, work with the developer because Claim at the time worked exclusively with outside developers. And so it was a pretty standard list of guys that we just rotate around various projects with one somebody could have could be working on a terminator game but they were also doing <laughs> the simpsons oh, what was that game boy game it was bart versus the juggernauts yeah bart versus the juggernauts that's right mm-hmm. the american gladiators parody that yeah because uh bart versus the space Beans was made by imagineering and i think nightmares made by sculptured software they were cycling through a lot of developers mm. yeah and then you just come kept coming back sculptured software was george and you just you know well what do you got well i got a team okay how about doing this and again it was very casual and and the juggernauts was i remember it was a sunny day and <laughs> the five of us were sitting in, in a parking lot in oyster bay because the claim had outgrown oyster bay and we just had no room anywhere we kept <laughs> renting buildings and the, the downtown of Oyster Bay was hosting a claim all over the place. So one of the parking lots were sitting there, and somebody had seen, uh, you know, American Ninjas. What about this? And it just became that little Game Boy game, which mm-hmm. had very little to do with The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the first in-game appearance of Kent Brockman. It is. Uh, <laughs> actually, it is It is one of the earlier faithful games because there is dialogue in the game. Yeah. Uh, they are trying to make jokes in the game that are sort of making fun of psychiatry and making fun of American Gladiators, things like that. So there's, there's a little bit of writing, which surprised me when I went back to play it. Yeah, and that's what I was curious about. At the time, what was not necessarily Matt Groening's, but the the input from the television show yeah. in the early days. In those days, it, that, it wasn't that extensive. 
Mm. Now, if you go to another Game Boy and and regular Nintendo and Super Nintendo game, and I think we were already doing Sega, but um, if you go to a game like uh, Krusty's Funhouse, mm-hmm. that well, that was based on an Amiga game called Rat Trap, right? right? <laughs> and it was developed by Audiogenic in the UK. But Matt, and I still have this thing, this cassette. He sent over suggestions for music for the game, and it was like Nina Rota music, and it was all this really intense wow. kind of orchestral stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is a Game Boy game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we only have four channels of audio, Matt. Please. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you said with Space Mutants, then Grading wanted to get more involved. So did he like come and visit the the studio, or, or visit a claim and have meetings with you guys, or was it more like kind of phone and 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 uh, well i guess not emails but letters back then yeah it's faxes no we, we'd actually I, I i would go back and forth as well as kickoff projects paul Samolsky. we would go back and forth to la to meet with matt on the fox lot the interesting thing about matt being more involved is it's sort of like the simpsons show you know matt's version of the simpsons is kind of i know it's the simpsons is all matt and everything Mm -hmm. but it's kind of different than what the show evolved into being like he wanted more like throttling bart you know (laughs) the the early season those kind of really over the top violent kind of antics (laughs) yeah that's that's one of the things i was wondering was any things that you were required to steer away from because bart obviously the show was for everybody but the games appealed very much to children mm-hmm. and Bart doesn't interact with a lot of human beings in most of those early games yeah and some of that was technical limitations mm. some of it was access to voice talent in the early days and the ability to reproduce it you know it, it's again regular Nintendo games uh, Game Boy games I mean there's a tiny amount of space yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. things you can do mm-hmm. but in terms of design it, it also was reflected in because we were using different development houses Mm -hmm. their attitude about the simpsons was different no matter how much direction you gave them it (laughs) changed you know it changed the way the simpsons were presented you know that just is a function of different people with different ideas you know you guys must have been you know watching the show but were there specific episodes or characters that some people thought like, oh, we have to have Sideshow Bob in this part or Barney in this part or mm-hmm. or other characters like to get to, to pick specific characters? How did you guys end up doing that? Well, until the time I was at Fox, it, it was really focused on, again, it wasn't tied to any TV line. It mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, storyline. It wasn't tied to anything in terms of their marketing goals. But for us is, well, what, can we put in a game or what can we adapt to a game? And I referenced Krusty's Funhouse. Mm-hmm. Krusty's Funhouse, you know, okay, that's going to be about Krusty and it's silly and we can do stuff with that, even though Krusty is really short and squat because <laughs> the original character was this kid. Yeah. And the kid was... <laughs> yeah. You can still see, still see pictures of the original game online. Is it available? Can people find that? I'm, I am not even aware that. Rat Trap, in and of itself, was a fun game, and it changed when it became Krusty's Funhouse, of yeah. course. Do you remember the first game you worked on that used new voice sampling? Because Krusty's Funhouse, by the way, like my second Super Nintendo game uh, <laughs> that I played a lot of, it, it does sound like Krusty. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a sample, and definitely we were really proud of that. Yeah. Um, he goes, So Whoa. that had to have been the first one, because <laughs> it certainly 
And I, again, I didn't work on Space Mutants, but it certainly wasn't in Space Mutants. Yeah. Right, yeah. In earlier games, they would just borrow clips from the show, but I noticed with Krusty's Funhouse, and also Virtual Bart seemed to have the most voice clips. Homer says, Virtual Bart, when you start the game, and it has a lot of original sound clips. Was, was, was that like a possibility at some point, or did you have to ask for it, or did they just say, okay, you have access to our voice actors for this period of time, or they can send you these lines if you request them? The original one, the original source of those was... We'll give you this, this, and this. Okay. And that based on negotiations with the actors. Mm. And uh, I think it, I think at the time it had to be new recordings oh. based on that. It couldn't be from the show. But by Virtual Bart, I had already moved on to working on Acclaim's motion capture technology. So oh. I wasn't working on Virtual Bart. Also, with those early games, uh, we've talked about it on the show here. The commercials for them were like <laughs> amazingly animated. They're and gorgeous. Were, they, they are gorgeous, and they they had you know Castellaneta and uh, Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright in it. So, I uh, did, were, did you work much on the production of those? No, those were outside ad agencies. Um, ah. The the marketing department at Acclaim. The thing about working Acclaim, and it was kind of great in a way, and then it became sort of obviously different is. <laughs> This is a, a game company on Long Island in New York, <laughs> isolated from every other game company. Huh. Most of the people there had never worked for a video game company. Most of them lived in Long Island. And the people they brought in to do, you know, the ad agency people that are dealing with ad agencies, their marketing people. I mean, they were pretty experienced marketing a lot of different things. So Acclaim had this edge, in my opinion, time because one they were dealing with licensed properties that people recognize and two they were dealing off you know with people that had experience in marketing you know a lot of products and a lot of different things and they were pretty savvy so you know it was, a, it was a good combination for that but for me to be immersed in the game industry by going out to Long Island every day isn't really <laughs> an overview of the game industry for a while <laughs> taking a glance at your bio Paul it, it looks like were you there at the beginning of the formation of Fox Interactive? Well, Fox Interactive was concept pitched by the licensing person who was in charge of video games. Mm -hmm. And it was a guy named Tom Marcus. And he was always the guy that used to show up out of the blue and say no to everything. <laughs> because we were, for instance, um, not about The Simpsons, but uh, we had alien, we did Alien Games. Yeah, oh, yes. For the, listeners, some, yeah. so the listeners yeah. know, you've worked on okay. Aliens, X-Files, Die Hard... A bunch of really fun Fox properties. Yeah, that's later at Fox. Mm -hmm. But at Acclaim, we did a bunch of Aliens games. Mm -hmm. And one of the games we did was Alien 3. And Alien 3, for fans of the films, is a film without weapons. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah that's right. That? Yeah. Wow. I remember this game. <laughs> that's now. a challenge. Yeah. So Scott, who wanted to hold tight on the licensing said, no, we, you can't borrow any weapons. No, you can't have any secret weapons hidden. Find a cache. No. So we ended up, I think, it stand, this record stands today, developing the world's first side-scrolling welding game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot all about Aliens 3. Of its time. That was, that was on every single like comic book back for like two oh, God. years. Yeah. Because you, you just had to seal the various corridors, seal the various <laughs> corridors. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like, probably okay. that's probably a podcast in and of its was. I shouldn't ask this because it's all Simpsons, but like, was the had you seen the final movie of Alien Three? Because that movie was in a ton of production turmoil. I, you know, because I'd recently watched 
the latest, the Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. I went back and watched them. But the thing about when you do games consistently about movie properties, and I've done a lot of Aliens games, mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of Simpsons games, you sort of, you know, you know the movies so well. Like, you know that huh. how many minutes of Alien footage there are in Aliens versus Alien, you know, because you're looking for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Alien 3, the director's cut is much better, but it's, in my personal opinion, it's somewhat of a flawed film. Yeah. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating film once you know everything behind it. Oh, it's a better uh, story. Oh, um, but I was explaining where Fox Interactive Yes. From so Scott had looked around at all the games that mostly Acclaim were doing with Fox Property, and he, he knew who the developers were, and so he pitched to his boss, who took him directly to Murdoch, and said, we should be doing these games. <laughs> yeah. And it worked. <laughs> and so... <laughs> To start things off, he started on his own, borrowing acclaimed developers, huh. a couple of projects, uh, which was about a movie that Fox had called The Page Master, an animated oh, no, movie. I know it. Oh, man. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin, live action animation hybrid in 1994, I believe. <laughs> I'm going to believe you on that. <laughs> giant nerd, trust me. He's right. <laughs> and uh, a tech game based on the TV show The Tech. Oh, oh yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. I love, the I tech. love that show. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed that. And up next, we have a portion of our interview with uh, Reed Harrison. Uh, just looking at his uh, profile on IMDb, he is just a renaissance man of television writing. He's kind of done it all. Uh, <laughs> but we specifically talked to him about his work with writing the episode The Springfield Files, getting into the business thanks to Bob Odenkirk. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, and yeah. uh, he hooked them up with Algene and Mike Reese. Just a really interesting tale he told us yeah, about Reed, getting into the business. Reed Harrison is a very interesting person who I think it's it's more interviews I want to do, too. Of like, definitely, I want to talk to you every showrunner of the show like bill oakley who can give you big picture takes on the simpsons but in our interview with reed we get to see more close-up of like what's it like to be a hired gun a freelance writer for the simpsons and just be given your one episode and working within the system instead of controlling the system like a showrunner does and that's what he does he also tells us about how he worked on the unproduced third season of the critic that's great because before the critic was canceled just based on production time they had to commission scripts for a third season that then they found out they would not animate so reed shared with us some really interesting bits about an unproduced would have been official episode of the critic he wrote i wanted to see this episode and after listening to this i'm sure you will too it seems like the perfect critic plot Yeah, sorry, to, to backtrack now, Odenkirk got you in contact with uh, Algina and Mike Reese when they were working on The Critic. Was like, this into season two of The Critic? Or I believe they had uh, started working on a season three at some point that then before they got the axe. What, what time was that in The Critic? Well, that's, that's right about uh, that. Um, I guess they were, they were writing episodes for uh, an upcoming season. And um, I wrote mine and it that never got made because mm-hmm. the, the show got oh can you actually tell yeah, can you remember would... uh, what your script was about we're we're doing a, a critic podcast too on top of the simpsons podcast so i definitely want to know if you can remember what your script was about yeah yes i think so so remember he had a he had a girlfriend at one point alice mm-hmm. right and alice decided that she had had enough of new york and moved back to i guess it was tennessee and jay decided that he was going to 
follow her to Tennessee. He went there and he basically was, you know, it was the big city guy in a, in a small. I don't remember beyond that what happened. I think I've got it somewhere, though. Wow. Wow. I guess, yeah, since it wasn't, since it never aired, it didn't turn into a show. It wasn't on your IMDb, but I didn't know you'd worked on the, on, on I, I'm so fascinated by those lost episodes. Same here. Yeah. yeah. I know for some shows like um, Mission Hill, uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein actually put the animatics and stuff online and on DVDs, but I don't think anything like that ever happened with the critic. No, I don't think so either. And, you know, I was, again, I was a, um, a freelance, right? Um, you know, heavily involved in, in that. Uh, so I don't even know if whatever happened or even if there was a table read of that. Hmm. Oh, what a shame. It sounds like a great premise for an episode. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, well, so then I guess that led into you working on the Springfield Files episode of Simpsons Season 8, which I, I believe Al Jean and Mike Reese show ran that, even though that Season 8 was, it was like kind of a satellite office, right, from the... the... That's exactly the way I have described it, too. They had a deal to do, um, I guess they were doing a, like a lot that season. They were doing um, maybe 26 or 27 episodes or something. Yeah, I think so it, was it was one really of the longer ones. They, they, they had been very, they were very effusive about the job I did on that critic script. It was really nice because that was really, that was my first gig. I was absolutely terrified, <laughs> very proud of the job I did. And they said, we're going to do uh, uh, four or five just to take the burden off the rest of the the Simpsons staff. But then they said, would you write, would you like to write one of them? And of course I said, yes. And they said, we've got this one. It's a X-Files crossover. You know, the, uh, some work had all, uh, actually a fair amount of work had already gone into that show, at least breaking it. And I think that probably they were saying, well, you know, this guy is a pretty new writer, so let's give him something that has had a lot of work done him already. They, yeah, so they, they gave me that one. And then the other four, I was sort of their, part of their little tiny staff satellite staff it was just me and them and uh dave stern sitting in a room oh wow dave stern that's awesome i they i guess they already knew not even that they had the premise but they had already worked on it did they have like some set things of in this episode since it's a crossover the x-files did they have like deals already in place of the x-files characters are going to do this or we're going to introduce this stuff i had like talked to david so Jillian, is that how you pronounce her last name? Her first yeah, name? I think Jillian so. Anderson. And um, so I don't know about that, but they had what they had done is they had beat out the basic story uh, of that it was um, alien encounters and Homer thinks he sees an alien and it turns out to be Mr. Burns. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, they had they had a lot of you know just jokes already in there, uh, the basic ideas, it, just in sort of long you know sort of random form. It was just you know a bunch of jokes. It wasn't it hadn't gone to an outline or anything like that. But they knew basically what they wanted to do. So I sat with them for a few days and we wrote out the uh, figured out what the outline would be, and then they sent me outlines as you probably know. They're very long and they're very very detailed. They're practically a script mm. you know already. And so I brought it in, and then they gave me uh, some other notes on that, and then they sent me off to to do a draft of it, chance to put in a fair amount of stuff. And then uh, I, you know, actually I took a couple of their jokes and changed them and because I didn't know. And then they, and I turned it in, they said, no, we like our joke better. <laughs> um, it's funny. I remember one specifically was the, the Budweiser frogs. And I remember, you know, I turned in my version of it. I thought it'd be funnier to have the Duff frogs. So it was going to be uh, one frog going, duh, the next one going, and the other one going, and belching. You know, <laughs> like that. 
I do like that. Kind of fun. I get to say we want to do our own. But the, the really cool thing was that they, compared to you know other freelance um, scripts I've had, that one I got to keep a lot of my own stuff in there. I was I was you know it was it was really nice to, that they did this. <laughs> the other thing that happened with this was again I'm I was still really new to the whole thing and I didn't quite understand how things work. And they they sent me off and they said, listen uh, for the first draft, and they said. Bring this in at, you know, maximum 55 pages, which is pretty long. But, you know, at because these things oftentimes are 43 pages or something. Mm-hmm. So there's some leeway to, you know, to expand. And I said, all right, great, great. And I, but at the time I didn't, I wasn't using like any, using like final draft or anything. I was just sort of um, and, and making the margins wherever I wanted to. And, <laughs> and so I was cheating everything. <laughs> wider than the pelf and you know just it was ridiculous that i didn't even think that they would come back and reformat it so i turned this thing in i was very excited about it and i I turn in the script and i go off with my girlfriend to uh, to to alaska for a nice well-deserved vacation and i'm up there we're up there for a week and i'm checking my phone messages message and they said yeah, read. This is Mike and Al. Um, uh, listen, we, we've we've reformatted your script, and it came out to eighty six pages. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a long episode. <laughs> oh my god! And I just you know, and I and all I could think right then was, I'm now I'm going to learn to become a bear trap trapper and stay up here in Alaska <laughs> because my career as a writer is over. I just thought I've blown it. I've just completely blown it. But uh, they were they they were nice about it and everything like that. And they cut the whole thing down. And then I went in and we did the rewrite. And there was you know a bunch of rewrites um, to be done for it. And but it, you know it, it came out to be such a, a fun fun script. And, and I think it, they actually put it on after the Super Bowl. Was oh wow! Premiere. More more about the Simpsons read. I just am um, curious how familiar were you with the characters? And when it came to writing for uh, Mulder and Scully, were there any rules uh, you know handed down from Fox like they can't do this, they have to do this, uh, certain things like that? No, there wasn't anything like that. I, you know, to be honest, I <laughs> I I don't know that I'd watch more than maybe one episode of the X Files. Oh wow! But yeah, I really didn't know anything about the show. I watched. I went then back and watched a few, and then I looked for the you know the basic. Um, you know, catchphrases, the truth is out there and, you know, a, a bunch of the stuff that seemed kind of standard with the show and tried to throw those in as much as possible. And Al and Mike knew so much about the show that they were able then to um, fill in where I didn't where I didn't know stuff. I don't think any. I mean, the thing about the show is that they're all, I think, very, very caring of people's feelings and they don't want to they don't want to insult people or make people look stupid. So there was never I don't think anybody ever thought that they were, you know, that they were going to be made to look like idiots. And and certainly they, you know, they they treated those characters pretty lovingly, I think. Yeah, it's very much a love letter to the X-Files. I was curious, another of like your big additions I saw on Twitter, actually the reason I had reached out to you and and found your Twitter account was because Bill Oakley retweeted you sharing a t-shirt of uh, a t-shirt joke of the bus that couldn't slow down. So was that one of your your big additions? I really love that joke about speed. Yeah, you know, that is, yeah, that's actually one that that I wrote for, for that episode. And that I, you know, I was thinking back on that and thinking, thinking very hard about that that bit. Uh, but I was really happy that they that they put it in, and I think they they beefed it up a little bit. But yeah, that's that was like it was so cool to see a T-shirt with the bus that couldn't slow down. 
Yeah, I'm wondering what it must be like for you because I feel like the first maybe nine seasons of The Simpsons are the ones that are quoted the most. And for us really hardcore Simpsons nerds, it's almost like a language that we speak to each other. Do you see things you've written all over the internet now? Oh, no. No, I mean, <laughs> not really. I, I've, no, I, I, you know, again, those were, that was the one where I had the most uh, input. But no, that's really the only time I've ever, I've ever seen anything of, of mine. Oh, that speed joke is still oh, one of my favorites, though. Well, thank you. That's very nice. I, I there was a lot. I think we were mentioning that um, there there were other things that I think you had quoted from that, like the opening with um, Leonard Nimoy. That is, it's brilliant. I didn't write any of it, but it's, I love it. Yeah, and no, I also love the "Keep watching the skis" line. That's another. My and just anyone that ends with them singing is is a pretty fun yeah. one. Yeah, it was it was really sweet. But that's the thing about the uh, the Simpsons too is that. Uh, you, you probably know it is really a, a big collaborative thing and it's wonderful to have an entire well like we didn't have an entire room i mean i had like uh dave, like I said dave stern and mike and al were the guys who were like improving this all the time and plus i think a bunch of jokes had already come from i think john Beatty had written a few mm. originally for it so it's you know there's so many really cool stuff and i'm i'm very proud to have my name on it and i also recognize that it's it's a it's a big group effort So yeah, that was uh, three of the interviews we did for the Talking Simpsons Patreon, and we're going to be doing more. I want to reach out to uh, lots of writers, maybe some of the lesser-known writers. Mm -hmm. who and have, animators, too. And animators, yeah. too. That's right. We can't neglect them. I feel like we need to start talking to people who worked on the, the whole uh, art side of The Simpsons, because... Uh, as we talk about it on Talking Simpsons, like it's a part of the show a lot of people overlook, and I, and and we sometimes do too. So I want to yep. talk, track down people. Maybe uh, Wes Archer will talk to oh. us, or David Silverman. I, I'm aiming high, but <laughs> I, I do want to talk to some of those first string directors to find out what it was like to get the Simpsons off the ground for sure. Mm -hmm. And so if you sign up for the Patreon, you can hear the full version of all those interviews just for five dollars a month. You can download those. It's really easy to find them. Actually, like now I put tags on all our old episodes. So if you see in the tag section of it you click the tags for uh, for interviews all three of those oh, awesome. interviews cool. are right there and so you can listen to those hour long really get into what it was like to work on the simpsons and we we learned a ton from those too it's great i, I like learning things from people that i could never see in a book just like i'm hearing this story i'm sure he's told it to other people but i know this story now and i can tell other people mm -hmm. and i will say if you're wondering how you can fit these extra podcasts into your life patreon is really great now they've made a lot of changes and now when you sign up at the five dollar level uh, with us you'll get your own little feed and you plug that into any mp3 player or program and it will just download your podcast as it does all of the other podcasts you listen to so there's no need to go to patreon.com and then download an mp3 and find a way to play that like in the old days it's yeah. all automatic it's all great and i love it personally as a podcast listener it's fantastic i i love it too you know i had been used to using the patreon app just to play the audio files which you can totally do too yeah, you can if do you that prefer too. that but I liked putting, I like the convenience of putting that RSS feed in there and it just feeds any pot, podcast we ever post in there and just goes in there, which that also includes, again, Talking Critic and the early ad-free episodes as well. And there's, all the specials. And, and all the specials. And there's tons, there's just so much. I, I don't want to sound like an infomercial, yeah. but I really do want you folks to enjoy that stuff and it's right there on the Patreon. So I hope hope you guys enjoyed these interviews as well. Yeah, just go to uh, patreon.com slash talking to find out how you can help us and if you just like our work even a dollar a month would be fantastic you yep. won't get anything out of it just kind of a tip to say hey thanks guys for giving me something to listen to every week and mm -hmm. we do appreciate those small donations too yeah totally and so 
again, patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. And also, if you want updates whenever a new one goes live, I definitely tweet about it at H-E-N-E-R-E-Y-G. That's right, and you can find me tweeting about everything I do at Bob Servo on Twitter. So yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again on another episode of Talking Simpsons. Later. infotainment.